That's funny. Good morning, church. It's good to be uh, worshiping with you once again this week. Uh, Before we get started, why don't we go to God in prayer. Father, you are so good. We praise you and we bless your name, O Lord. Father, as we go to your word, Father, would you speak to us through it? Would you anoint us with your Holy Spirit so that we would be able to see your truth? Father, anoint the lips of your, your servant so that I might preach your word, your gospel truth. We pray as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was thinking about uh, greatest hits and uh, what are some of the greatest songs, I got to actually thinking about what are some of the greatest songs uh, that are associated with TV shows or films, the kind of song that you hear and you just get in the mood for that kind of a show or that film, or you you hear that song and you know what's coming on. You don't even have to see the actual movie. You already know that if you hear this song, that's going to be a great great movie. Do we have those slides? Uh, I did pick a couple because I I was going to play you some of these songs, but then Ashley told me that uh, if I play these songs for you, that, um, yes, that if I play these songs for you, that, you know, we're going to get copyright striked and we're going to get banned off YouTube and that's not such a good thing. So I'm sure you can hear that song. Uh, I remember walking into Disney World and hearing this song and it's so magical and everything feels amazing. You know you're going to have a great day. Uh, And if you see this, you know you're in store for lightsabers and lasers and spaceships and Jedi. It's going to be awesome. And and if you hear this, this one maybe is for me. You rap along. I remember rushing home from school to hear this song. And I I just knew it was going to be a good time for the next 30 minutes when I watched this show. Or how about this one, huh? You guys know that show. You hear it. You hear it right now. Michael Scott of A Good Time and Hijinks with Michael Michael Scott. Our passage this morning, Ruth 1, 1 to 18, is kind of like that. It's, it's kind of like this um, uh, uh, precursor or like it's, it's a passage that ju- as soon as you hear it, you know you're in store for a good time. You might not have seen the whole story yet, but you know you're in store for a good time. Now let's get to our pastors this morning. Our big idea this morning, the one thing that I want you to take home, if you don't take home anything else this morning, the one thing I do want you to take home is seeing isn't believing, but believing is seeing. How does that work? Let's get to Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. That's right, it's not Chilion, it's Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so right off the bat, what the narrator is doing for us is he's setting the stage. He's kind of playing the theme song for us, if you will. So there are three things that I want you to pick up from this just first two verses here. He says, first, right off the bat, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, this is a huge statement that you and I might think of as kind of innocuous. It's kind of like a nothing burger statement. But that actually is a huge deal. Why? Because an ancient Israelite would have been listening to scripture in order. And what is the verse that comes right before Ruth 1, verse 1? It's Judges 21, uh, verse 20, or sorry, yes, 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the book of Judges chronicles the story or the time period in Israel's history when there was no kings and there were a bunch of judges that kind of presided over the land. And if you're familiar with this, that story, you'll know that th the time of the judges was actually a really bad time. In fact, it started kind of okay, and then it would increasingly spiral into this worse and worse time as uh, Israel would fall away from God, and they would continually disobey. So they would disobey, and God would send a famine, or he would send the Moabites or the Amalekites to attack the land, and then they would be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so we're sorry, we're sorry. And then God would raise up a judge, and through the judge, God would conquer or, or defeat whoever was attacking them, and then they would be like, eh, but we're not that sorry. And then they would disobey again, and then again, God would send the Amalekites or the Moabites or, or whoever, and, and, and they'd be attacked, and they'd be like, we're sorry, we're sorry. And it would just go down and down and down. And it, it eventually led to this time period in Israel's history where nobody was really following the commands of the Lord, but instead everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is a bit of an aside, but that's kind of how I feel about society today. Kind of a loose tangent here. But like, don't you feel like everybody is kind of like, well, that's good for you, it's not so good for me, you know, if whatever's good for you is good for you, there's no objective truth and no objective reality, that's kind of where we're at with society today, but anyway, that's kind of an aside, the idea here is Ruth 1 starts with this negative, huge, ominous statement. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So you immediately know where the nation of Israel is at in its time period. It's in a negative spiral. Not only this, there was a famine in the land. Remember what we talked about just now. When things are going bad, what does God do? He sends a famine. He sends the Amalekites. He, he, he sends the Moabites, whatever he does. And here, they're in the midst of a family. So that tells you where you're at. It gives you the place and time setting. The second thing I want you to notice is that he mentions, uh, the narrator mentions the country of Moab twice. Once in verse 1, once in verse 2. But it says that they sojourned in the country of Moab. And to make it more clear, in verse 2, he says, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now again, this is a huge deal for an ancient Israelite listening. For you, it might, say, it might seem like, well, they moved to Texas, it's not that big a deal. Or they moved to Florida, whatever, it's not the who cares. But actually, for an Israelite, they were supposed to remain in the promised land. This was the land that were, they were promised. In order to be obedient to God, they were supposed to remain in Israel. Yet, here is Elimelech and his family who have, because of famine, moved to Moab. Now, if you understand anything about Middle Eastern or Mediterranean geography, you'll understand that actually Judah, or Bethlehem, Judah is kind of the area, Bethlehem is a city or a town, to Moab is not particularly far. Walking, it's quite far, but like, it's not all that far. It's like Stouffville to Waterloo or something like that. It's not, it's not, it's like one day's car trip, if you will. So it's not this entirely different growing zone. It's not this totally different temperate climate. It's not as though there's famine in Bethlehem, so there might not, might not be famine in Moab. It, it, it's, a, it's really about the same place. Yet he's decided to move his family into the land that they were not supposed to go to, away from the land that they were not supposed to leave, into the land that they're not supposed to go to, into enemy territory. Remember, we talked about the Moabites actually sometimes attacking the Israelites. And so they're going to rival country. 
And the third thing that I want you to take, take note of is the idea that uh, the narrator actually mentions the town of Bethlehem twice. It says, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah uh, in verse one. And then in the second verse, he says uh, here, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now that is a huge deal. Whenever you see the town of Bethlehem, it should raise alarm bells. I'm sure it does for you. But for an Israelite, it would raise alarm bells for quite a different reason than what you and I think of first. But we're gonna get there. I want you to store that Bethlehem idea in your back pocket. We're gonna come right back to it in a little bit. But our idea this morning, again, is that seeing isn't believing but believing is seeing. So how does that work out? In verses uh, three through five, it says here, uh, but Elimelech, the son, or sorry, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So if you're following along with our story, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, two sons, Naomi, his wife, and also now we have these two characters, Ruth and Orpah. If you're following along now, immediately the narrator has killed off half of the characters that he's introduced us to. If you were a man in this story, I'm sorry, it's gonna be a bad time for you, you're dead. Just 50% of the people dead, blood related to. And she has immediately lost her husband and two sons. Her hope of the future, gone. That's it. It's over. The other detail that I want you to pay attention to here is that they are Moabite wives. Now, if you aren't supposed to leave the land of Israel with your family, you definitely specifically are not supposed to intermarry. You are not supposed to take Moabite wives, yet they have done so. So again, it tells you about what Elimelech thinks about obeying God, what Malon or Kilion think about obeying God. They're not exactly the most fervent religious people. So uh, if you're following along, yes, we have a quite a 50% death rate at this moment in time. Now, moving on to verses Six through 10, we're gonna see why this all makes sense here. So it says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So to summarize, Naomi, at this point, she's got nothing left. She's lost her two sons, her hope for the future. She's lost her support system in her husband, Elimelech. And so in the fields of Moab now, where she has nothing left, she's got her two daughters-in-law. She decides to pack it up and go home to Bethlehem because they're on an upward spiral. God has lifted the famine or something. There's food in the land. So 
Naomi decides to go back to uh, Bethlehem with her two daughters-in-law, and along the way there somewhere, somewhere between Moab and Judah, she turns to her daughters and says, you know what, I think it's better if you go home. She encourages her daughters-in-law to return home. She actually releases them from uh, the, the, the marriage covenants that they have made kind of implicitly. She says, may each of you find rest in the house of her husband, right? So she's saying like, look, I know you can see and I can see that there's not going to be much hope for us here. So why don't you go back to your people, go back to your gods, go back to where you were comfortable with, go back to your family and see if you can remarry, see if you can have some kids in the future and that way there will be some hope for you. She kind of implicitly kind of uh, implies this and, and you know, they, they have this emotional, heart-rending moment where they're crying out and they're holding on to one another and they're saying, no, no, please, no, we're, we're going to go with you to your people. However, she insists. She goes on in verse 11, it says, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, so she left, but Ruth clung to her. Now, here is where Naomi gets a little bit more forceful with her instructions. Now, previously, she was kind of encouraging her daughters-in-law to go home. She's saying, look, there's no future. She's kind of implying it like, uh, there's not going to be much hope for you. You're going to have to come to Bethlehem. You're not going to know anybody there. But you, so in, instead of doing that, you should go home. But here she is much more clear. In Hebrew, there are three types of verbs when you're referring to others, when you're talking to somebody else. There is what's called a cohortative verb, where it's kind of a let us do this, like uh, let's go to lunch. That's kind of a cohortative. There is a jussive, which is kind of like a please would you do this for me? Please would you go get some lunch for me? It's kind of like a would you please kind of do me a favor kind of thing. And finally, and this is the one that Naomi uses here, is an imperative command. You shall do this. And remember, Naomi is still their mother-in-law. She is of a higher standing than her when she says, or higher standing than Ruth and Orpah, when she says something, it ought to be done. So she commands it the same way, like, this, this is the same verb tense you see in the Ten Commandments. She uses this kind of very forceful no, each one of, no, you shall return. You must go back. So Orpah does this. Orpah sees that there isn't really going to be a future. Why? Because Naomi spells it out for her uh, quite clearly. She says that, she says that I, I have, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? What she's saying here is she's kind of outlining them the possibility or she's telling them about the potential um, that is understood about leveret marriage and saying that it's not a possibility. What is leveret marriage? Leveret marriage is the ancient Old Testament practice of if you're, if you're a, a, a woman and your husband dies, the brother of your dead husband can now give you a child, can, can 
you can have a child with that brother and you would have a hope for the future. That child would be counted as your deceased husband's child. And so in that way, the inheritance and lineage is continued. And that is called leveret marriage. It's, it only happens in specific instances when your husband dies and the, the, the brother is still available. But if we remember correctly, all the guys are dead. Malon, Kilion, all dead. So there is no possibility. And she's saying, have I yet sons in my womb? Interestingly here, she actually uses the word me'im in the Hebrew instead of beten or rehem, which is the normal way you would, uh, you would say womb. Beten, rehem is kind of the, 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 the word for womb. But she uses me'im, which is actually a word to say gut or like my stomach or, 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 or like a feeling um, is, is often where uh, uh, me'im is kind of used. And what she's implying here is not just that she's kind of past childbearing age. It's not, not even possible. She's saying that she has no hope. There is no hope. There's nothing left for me. She's incredibly sad about this situation. And in her gut, she has no hope for the future. That's what she's implying when she says, uh, uh, when she uses the word womb. Now, typically in your English, you're going to find the word womb. But if you go to your biblical interlinear, you're going to find the word me'im instead of beten rehem. Anyway, that's kind of an aside, a little bit nerdy, but I, I just had to go there. Uh, so she lays out the options for them quite clearly. For Ruth and Orpah, there are two options. Option A, you go back to your family, you find new husbands, you have children, there's hope for the future, everything is going to be okay, you just forget about me, don't worry about it, go home, I'm releasing you. Or B, you follow me and there's no hope for you, there are no sons that are going to be coming. You're going to a foreign place where you're not going to know anybody. And also, you're not going to know the God that I'm worshiping. You know nothing. The only bridge that we have is this loose connection where uh, you were once married to, the, to a son that I have since lost. And so the, the options are quite clear for Orpah and Ruth. Orpah decides to take option A. The option that you can clearly see there is going to be a future in. Whereas Ruth, for Ruth, seeing isn't believing, but believing is seeing. Right. So if we, if we even take a deeper look, uh, we might notice that she, she at the end even says, uh, Naomi says, for it is exceedingly bitter for me uh, uh, to me for your sake. And this is an interesting phrase that she says, exceedingly bitter. Because the, the word bitter, which is Mara, which she, she, she actually uses to name herself later, Mar, is, is already like very sad. Like it's not just sad, it's like very, very sad. Like despair, anguish, pain, like this is terrible. But then she couples that with the word me'od, which means very, very, like very extremely sad. She's not like a little bit sad. She's like a lot of bit sad plus that times two. It's incredibly sad. And, and so Orpah decides to leave. But Ruth, Ruth clings. And maybe you identify with this idea um, of, uh, that, that Orpah 
or you identify with how, how Naomi was feeling or how Orpah might, might have been feeling. You know, in, in your situation today, you might maybe uh, have no hope. You might have uh, recently um, lost a job or, or you didn't get that promotion. You didn't get into the school of your choice. You didn't get into the program of your choice. Maybe a family member or you were diagnosed with cancer. Maybe your plans for the summer or for the fall or whatever were canceled. Everything is not going well for you But here, Ruth shows us how to respond. She says in verses 16 to 18, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is incredible. Let's take note of what Ruth has lost so far and what situation is facing Ruth, what situation she is staring down the barrel of. She is saying that despite losing my husband, she's lost her status as a wife, despite losing the potential for being a mother, she's lost her future, despite my physical needs not quite being met right now and in danger of not being met at all because they're going home and they're going, or Naomi's going home, they're going to Bethlehem and really she has no opportunity to own land or build a farm or any of that situation. She's going to be kind of at the, at, at the mercy and goodwill of the people around her. They're gonna have to beg for scraps. So she has also lost her, her, her ability to sustain herself. She chooses to follow God. How incredible is this? She cannot see the path ahead, yet she chooses to believe because seeing isn't believing, but believing is seeing. And she takes an even deeper vow. She, she doubly vows this, where she says in the verses 17 uh, through 18, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me more uh, and more also, if, I, if anything but death parts me from you. She's saying that even in death, there is no going home. She has decided to follow God. There is no turning back. And I think that is such an amazing message for us this morning, that despite of her circumstance, in spite of everything that is stacked up against her, she decides to follow God. There is no turning back. Not for a moment, not even in death, is she going home. Because this is her home, this is her God. So, fortunately for us, though, that isn't where the story ends. You put your trust in God and, you know, hope for the best. That is not where the story ends. When she gets to Bethlehem, if you read on in in the book of Ruth, I'm just going to summarize for us because we don't have time to work through all four chapters. But you'll see that she eventually meets a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. What's a kinsman redeemer? Well, a kinsman redeemer is a family relation, somebody who's related to your family, who has the ability and opportunity to kind of buy you back or rescue you from a bad situation. In this case, his name is Boaz, and he has the opportunity to take Ruth as his wife and give her a child, and he does so. But Boaz isn't just any family relation. Boaz is special. Boaz's grandmother is Rahab. Now, if you know in the Old Testament, there are only three instances in the entirety of the Old Testament 
The whole Old Testament story where somebody who is not an Israelite expressly says that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my God. There are people that acknowledge that God is powerful, Yahweh is powerful, that Yahweh is real, but there are only three people that pledge allegiance and say, this is my only God. We talked about Ruth, one, Naaman, who gets healed of leprosy by uh, dipping himself in the river uh, in, in Samuel. And then we have Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute in, 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 in Canaan that, w- that helped the spies in, and, and so she's quite famous. In fact, there are two women that are mentioned uh, outside of Mary in Jesus' genealogy. They are Ruth and Rahab. That's a bit of a spoiler for where we're going, but Ruth and Rahab. And Rahab, Rahab is Boaz's grandmother. So he is intimately familiar and very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sympathetic with Ruth's story. He knows exactly how Ruth might be feeling because that was the story of his grandmother. He knows exactly what it is to come to a foreign land, to adopt a foreign God, to to not be familiar with anybody and be adopted into the family of God, Boaz is special. So in Boaz, um, what was lost is restored for Ruth. That that hope for a future uh, that was lost is now restored because Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed. And her physical needs are met because Boaz actually ends up being quite wealthy. He owns many fields, and also he ha- he has servants who 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 wrap those fields or take care of those fields up for or take care of those fields for him. Now, if you understand ancient Israelite uh, culture and practice, only the very very wealthy people would actually be able to have servants. So Boaz is kind of the cream of the cream, the top ch- like primo type eligible bachelor. And so uh, in Boaz, we have the restoration of what Ruth once was. Now, if we remember back to Ruth when she was here in verse 16, making that promise, making that covenant, and and professing her faith, she couldn't see that Boaz was going to meet her on the other side. But here he is, the fulfillment Because seeing isn't believing, but believing is seeing. And when she believed, there it is. God is faithful. She sees how faithful he is. But this isn't just fulfillment and faithfulness and seeing the outcome for Ruth. It also is fulfillment and faithfulness towards Naomi, who actually said that the hand of God has gone out against me when it actually had not in Ruth 4. It says uh, here, Ruth 4, 16 to 17, it says, Then Naomi took the child, Obed, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, not Ruth, Naomi. They named him Obed. That's really interesting here, because they don't say that this is Ruth's son. They say that this is Naomi's son, because she has lost her sons. She has lost everything. She had lost her hope for the future, but here in Obed, everything is restored. But again, God's plan is not just Ruth. It's bigger than Ruth. It's bigger than Naomi. It was for the nation of Israel because here it says uh, right after that, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of 
David. Remember, all the way in the beginning, we talked about how uh, it was during the time of the judges. It, it, in that time, the, the judges ruled the land. Well, here is God's faithfulness to the Israelites. He is saying, look, I have a plan for you, and that plan involves a Moabite woman, a person who is not part of the, 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 the direct family of God, but is adopted into the family of God, I have a plan, and that plan requires you to believe. That plan requires you to take a step of faith on the road between Moab and Bethlehem. That plan requires you to believe in order to see, because David is the king that would take Israel to its highest heights. The pinnacle of Israel's power and the pinnacle of what Israel was as a nation was achieved or realized under King David. And so the, the, the story of Ruth is one about personal redemption, family redemption, but also collective redemption as a nation. And if you remember, uh, we talked about having uh, storing Bethlehem in our back pocket. For an ancient Israelite, any time that they would hear the word Bethlehem, or the town of Bethlehem, huge alarm bells. Huge, huge, huge alarm bells because they would remember that, oh, that's where King David is from. King David comes from Bethlehem. So for us, it might be something different, but for Israel, it would be King David. But let's talk about what it means for us. Not only does it uh, mean Bethlehem ring alarm bells for, for King David. But anytime we talk about Bethlehem, what do we think? We think Jesus. We think mangers. We think lights and wise men and shepherds and King Herod. Oh, King Herod. We, we, we think of uh, the virgin birth and, and all those wonderful things that are associated with the coming of Jesus. And this is not, is not by any mistake. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Micah 5 and 2, testify and prophesy that Jesus is going to be of the line of David. He's going to be a direct son of David, which he ends up being, and also that he will be born. Micah prophesies that he will be born in Bethlehem. It is no accident that Ruth and Naomi return home to Bethlehem. This is part of God's bigger plan. In the same way, God has a plan for you despite the challenges that you might be facing this very moment. Despite you not being able to see how the end might work out, how God might be faithful to you in this circumstance, God has a plan. And he's saying that seeing isn't believing, but believing is seeing. If you believe in God, you will see just how faithful he is. If we move on uh, to... To, to, where, to, to where Jesus comes and what he means for us then, it, it, the idea is that, you know, you and I have been permanently and forever eternally separated from the love of God. You and I have fallen short of his glory. You and I have fallen short of his standard of perfection. There is nothing you can do to be good enough for God. Right? If you had a test that was a thousand questions wrong, and the standard for admission is perfect, and you got one wrong, it doesn't matter that you got 999 questions correct, it still wasn't perfect. Even if you made that test 2,000, if you, if you got one question wrong, it's still not perfect. And the standard 
for a relationship with God is perfection. But God's plan, see, is bigger than that. God's plan was bigger than our sin because he sent Jesus Christ, the promised son, as the propitiation or the sacrifice for our sin. He lived that perfect life that we should have lived, died the death that was rightly ours in order that we might be restored to him. So what's required of you is three things that you accept that you are less than perfect. That you believe that Jesus died for your sin and that you would choose to follow him. A, B, C. Accept that you have fallen short of his glory. Believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation and choose to follow him every day. A, B, C. So where are you today? Maybe you don't quite see why you need God. Maybe God isn't that important to you. Or you don't see that, you know, um, God is necessary in your life because I could be good enough. Maybe I can, I can earn it. Maybe there's a way for me. Maybe I can do this myself. Seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. God will make a way. And when you believe, you will see. I want to end off with a story um, about Jackie Pullinger. Jackie Pullinger in 1966 uh, was a, a young woman uh, in, in England, and she felt the call to go on mission, to join God's mission globally, not just in England, but globally. But the problem was that she did not know where God was calling her. So she goes to her vicar, a vicar in England is kind of like a pastor, and she says, you know, I, I, I know that God is calling me, but I don't know where God is calling me, and I can't go if I don't know. So the vicar says to her, why don't you get on a boat that is making as many stops as, as, in ports of call as possible, and you pray. The whole time you're on this boat, you pray. And when God is telling you which port of call to get off at, you'll know. And so she gets on this boat in France, and it travels the world, and at some point it ends up in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, she receives the call from the Lord, this is the, this is the place, here's where I should get off the boat. So her and her $10 and all her belongings, not very many, 10 British pounds, she gets off the boat, goes straight to the immigration office and says, I want to move here, and they promptly deny her. They say, nope, you've got 10 bucks, you don't know anybody here, well, you don't know when you're leaving, you don't know where you're going to have a job, you don't even have an interview lined up, there is no way we're letting you in this country until she remembers that her mother is actually the godmother for a police officer who actually ends up helping her immigrate. Now, she eventually ends up finding work in a primary school in the Kowloon Walled City. If you're uh, familiar with uh, Hong Kong and the Kowloon Walled City in the 1960s, it was actually not part of the British Empire. It was a little tiny little part of town that was actually owned by the Chinese government and not part of the British Empire that owned Hong Kong at the time. And so therefore it was unpoliced. And when it's unpoliced, you know what that means. There's gonna be gangs, drug abuse, prostitution. It was really the seedy underbelly of what Hong Kong was, the Kowloon Walled City. And she there found a job as a primary school teacher. And in her ministry, she helped hundreds, if not thousands of people who were struggling with drug addiction, prostitution, homelessness, poverty. In fact, so much so that 
The, the, the government of Hong Kong recognized her work and she, her work, even though she's retired today, continues on today through grants and, and financial support from the government of Hong Kong itself, uh, even though the Kowloon Wall City no longer exists. However, this story is a little bit personal for me as well, because after uh, uh, Jackie Pullinger taught in the primary school in the Kowloon Wall City, she also spent some time at St. Stephen's All Girls College, where my own mother went to school. And the reason that I, my mother sent me to Christian school is because of her experiences at St. Stephen's uh, All Girls College um, where she received her Christian education. And so she found that incredibly valuable. And she sent me to receive uh, Christian education at People's Christian Academy, which I also in turn have found incredibly valuable. When I went to university and was exposed to all these different ideas and different faiths for the very first time, I was able to answer the questions that I had for myself based on the training and education that I received at People's Christian Academy. Now, Jackie Pullinger, when she got on that boat in France, had no idea that I would be standing here on this platform today speaking to you but God has a plan. And when Jackie believed, she is now able to see the product of her work because God is faithful. And so this morning, the thing I want you to remember is that seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And when we believe in you, when we place our faith in you, when we trust in you, Father, you are faithful, you are good, and you will provide you are the one who makes a way. So, Father, we praise you, we thank you, and, Lord, we ask that you would inspire us to deeper faith, to know you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.